A lot of us are afraid of the dark, but unfortunately, too often, we find ourselves wanting darkness as well. There was a time when I was, I want to say about five or six years old, and it's so vivid. I don't remember much when I was that age, but I remember I, I, I actually, I put the blame on, on the dream because it was, it was the dream's fault, but I had a dream that I walked to the bathroom and I went to the bathroom. And when I woke up, I wasn't in the bathroom, but I had gone to the bathroom. <laughs> I wet the bed. And, and I was old enough to, to not be wetting the bed anymore. I was old enough to not have that problem. So I was embarrassed. But it was, it was only really on my pajamas and, that, and the top sheet. Not like the fitted sheet, but the top sheet. Was, that was only really where I had wet the bed. And so I thought, okay, here's what I'll do. I'm going to shove these sheets down to the end of the bed, and then they'll dry out, and my mom will never find out that I wet the bed. Good plan, right? Good plan. No, I, that, that was the hope. I was ashamed. I didn't want my mom finding out that I had wet the bed, and so I tried to hide it. And there in the darkness, those soiled sheets, what did they do? Did they dry out, all bunched up together under the covers? No, they didn't. And within a day or two, my mom just happened to decide to change my sheets. And she goes, and I was there in the room and terrified, what is she going to find? And sure enough, she, what, what is this? Why is this all pushed? Oh, Ryan, what happened? And so I told her the story. And she was able to, Ryan, you don't need to do that. Number one, that doesn't work. It didn't solve any problems. They didn't dry out. They didn't wash themselves at the end of the bed there. But just tell me and we'll, we'll get it figured out. But it was because of my shame. It was because of that feeling like I had done something wrong that I wanted to keep that in the dark. I didn't want anybody to find out about that. And yet the solution was to bring it into the light and into the washing machine. But to bring it into the light. To let it known what had happened so that we could, so that we could fix it. So that we could deal with it. And I had a fundamental issue there in my understanding of my mom. And this is one of those things that, of course, I knew that, but I didn't apply it in that moment. My mom loved me. She told me that she loved me. It's, it's silly that I would be afraid of what my mom would think about me when I know that she loves me so dearly. She wasn't going to punish me for accidentally wetting the bed like that. She wanted to help me. And it was based on that love that I should have brought that problem into the, out of darkness and into the light. And that's what we're talking about in Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. That's where we're going to be. And it starts with this concept of love. And that's where it has to start. The foundation for this passage is love. <clears throat> and actually, we've seen love as a theme throughout Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, in love he predestined us. In Ephesians chapter 2, that it was the great love with which he loved us that he sent Jesus to save us. And then Ephesians chapter 3, that we need to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And all of that leads up to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. These first two verses deal with a very important issue, a very important thing to bring up as we talk about this passage. In the last half of Ephesians, our, the main focus is on how we live a new life, 
on the things that we do, good works, that kind of thing. And yet, if we put that first, if we put the, you need to be a good person, you need to do the right things, you need to obey God first, without Ephesians 1 through 3, we're going to totally miss it. And we're going to have no ability to actually do that. And Ephesians 1, or Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 help remind us of that again. That first verse, therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Be imitators of God. That's the doing. This is how we're supposed to obey. This is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to imitate God. And you can imagine, last week we talked about putting on the new self. And if you think about it, if you were to put on the new self, and you were to go and stand in front of the mirror, what would you see? You would see that new creation, and yet what would it look like? Well, if we're supposed to be imitators of God, you would look something more like God, living out your identity in the image of God. So we see that connection there, putting on the new self, being imitators of God. We're supposed to do the things that God does. We're supposed to live like God does. And yet that alone is a weight, is a burden too great to bear. How can I possibly be like God? How can I possibly imitate God? But then that next phrase helps us, as dearly loved children. Now in the ESV, you might find the word beloved there. And I decided to use a different translation for that word because beloved just doesn't really hit me very well. It's one of those Bible words that I never use in real life, in normal life. And I always forget that it actually has to do with love. It just seems like a filler word. And I heard another translation this last week that used the phrase dearly loved. And that spoke so much more clearly to me about who we are in Christ. You could actually rephrase it this way. Because you are dearly loved children, imitate your father. And there's something about that that helps us understand that because we know how, much, how loved we are, that causes us to want to. That causes us to have the desire to be like God, to imitate God, to be like our father. You can imagine, this isn't, this isn't a negative kind of thing. This isn't, a, you know, you're, a, you're, you're messed up, you're a screw up, you need to be more like your dad. This is a, because of the love that your father has for you. You can imagine this in your own life. If you have a loving father, that, that father that loves you and cares for you, and you know the love that they have for you, you've experienced that love. And because of that, you look up to your dad, and you want to be just like him. Because of the love that God has for us, because we are dearly loved children, that causes us to want to imitate God, to be like God. That next verse, we find the parallel idea. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk in love. Tom talked about that earlier, the the walk of the Christian life. To walk is to live. That's what that word means there. We, We live our new life And we do it in love. But that love, where does it come from? What is it based on? What kind of love is it? What's the love that Christ had for us when he gave himself up for us? A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus' death on the cross, the sacrifice for our sins, that shows us how much he loved us. And it's only out of that love, it's only in that love, from that love, that we can walk in the new life, that we can put on the new self and live differently, that we can live a new life in Christ because of how much Jesus has loved us. 
And that's the foundation of this passage, knowing the love that God has for us. Because we could never live differently. We could never walk in obedience. We could never live as God has called us to live unless we know the love that God has for us, unless we know the love that Jesus had for us when he died on the cross for our sins. We are dearly loved children. And that leads us then into the next section that we're going to see here. Verses 3 through 7. So keep that in mind throughout the rest of the time as we're talking about this. So verses 3 through 7 say this. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. There's a lot of negative in this section. And we're going to see that. This is, this is the, the bad side of it. This is the negative side of it. This is the sin side. As we talk about light and darkness, this is the darkness. And we see a couple different lists here of three things. The first list is repeated twice. And I think it's important that we dig into these words a little bit more because we're going to see the connections that they have together. And we're going to see that there's really one main theme, one main area of sin that Paul is focused on in this, in this section of scripture. So the first one, sexual immorality. That one should be fairly obvious. We're talking about any sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage. Any, any sexual activity outside of that covenant of marriage, that's sexual immorality. The second one, impurity. And that speaks of an uncleanliness. But that word there is speaking specifically of a sexual uncleanliness. Keeping on that same theme of the sexual immorality, a sexual uncleanliness. And that's, that's uh, we understand that even in our culture today. How the word dirty is used to describe those kinds of things, especially outside of the confines of marriage. And we get to the third one. Covetousness. And this one seems to be a little different on the surface. What, is, what does it mean to covet? What is covetousness? I would define it as a deep desire for something that doesn't belong to you. A deep desire for something that doesn't belong to you. This, this falls under that category of greed. You want something, but it's not yours. And yet, when you look back at Exodus chapter 20, the second example that we find about this commandment is do not covet your neighbor's wife. And we can understand the implications of that. That this is also connected to those other two. That there's this idea of a sexual greed or a sexual covetousness, wanting what doesn't belong to you, wanting what's not yours. And so you see the theme in, these, in this first list. It's all related to sexual sin. And what does he say about it? He said, this must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. This isn't the kind of way that you should be living I don't want to hear that these things are going on among you. Remember, he's writing to a church, and this works both on the church level, this community of believers, as well as the individual level, because the individuals make up that community. But there's this connection here, that, or this, this idea here. He's like, I don't want to be hearing that this kind of stuff is going on there. This is not the way that you are called to live. This is not living out your new life in Christ. Continues on with the second list. 
Filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. Filthiness, what does that word mean? Well, we see it related to that impurity word earlier, but it's a little bit differently. Think about the word obscenity, speaking obscene things. This is not so much an action as as it is a word. These are words that you're using, talking about things. And obscenity relates to, once again, that sexual sin, talking about sexually inappropriate things. Then the word foolish talk, the best description I found of this is this is like the conversation of a drunk man. It's foolish talk. And the conversation of a drunk man can go many different ways, but often it does still go to that same idea, that same theme that we've been on throughout these last few verses. Filthiness, foolish talk, and the last one there, crude joking. I don't have to really explain that one much. We, We pick that up right there, joking about those kinds of things. And what does he say about this? Filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. He, sa- he said at the beginning, let there be none of it. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking. They're out of place. This kind of stuff should not be happening among followers of Jesus, among believers in Jesus. This is not the right kind of behavior. This is not walking new in Christ, the new life in Christ. This is not what it looks like. And it's important to recognize the relationship. We've seen the same theme throughout the whole thing. We're talking mainly about sexual sin in this passage here. But it's two sides of the same coin. The first list, the first three, related to deeds, sexual things that you do. The second list was what we talk about. And we can see that we have a tendency to diminish, you know, okay, I'm not going to do those things, but it's not a big deal if I talk about them. I mean, what I talk about, that doesn't mean I'm going to do it. It's, it's, that's not a big deal. We can joke about that kind of stuff. We can talk about that kind of stuff. It doesn't mean we're actually going to do it. And yet, how often does making light of those things, does talking about them, does thinking about them, then lead to that action? And I would actually add another category here, one that maybe wasn't as, as big of an issue during the time when Paul was writing to the Ephesians, but it's a huge issue now. When you think about the kind of content that you're allowing into your mind. Back then, it took some effort to get media content into your mind. You had to go somewhere. But now, we can sit on our couch and we can, we can feed ourselves as much as we want. Between the internet and TV, there's endless amounts of content that we're putting into our mind. And it's important to think about what kind of stuff am I looking at? What kind of stuff am I allowing into my mind Because that then leads me to think about it, to talk about it, and then to do it. And Paul says that none of that, all of that, is not good. And the next phrase here seems out of place. Seems kind of strange. In the midst of a fairly negative section of Scripture talking about sin, he says, instead, this is the last part of verse 4, instead, Let there be thanksgiving. And it seems kind of odd. What does thanksgiving have to do with those kinds of things? Why is he bringing this up now? Why is he encouraging thanksgiving as opposed to living in sexual immorality? But I think it's a very simple truth out of that phrase there. If you can't give thanks to God for it, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. If you can't thank God for that thing that you're doing or participating in, that probably means that's a good test or that you should not be doing that thing. 
Because we, we can't give thanks to those, those kinds of things that we do. That's the opposite. So ask yourself, as you go throughout the week, can I give thanks to God as I do this or that? Is that something that I could give thanks to God for? Continue on with verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's a really important verse. And it should weigh you down a little bit. I want you to think about the seriousness of what he just said. He repeats that list, and this time he explains even, uh, making a bigger deal than just covetousness, but idolatry. Covetousness is wanting something that doesn't belong to you. Idolatry is wanting something more than you want God. Loving something more than you love God. And you can see the progression of that there. And the people that do those things, the people that live that way, what happens to them? They have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And I want to make this clear. This isn't some second blessing, some better heaven or something like that. He's just talking about our eternal hope of being with Jesus in heaven in the new creation forever. And so, wait, what did he just say? He said, if you don't do those things, then you have no salvation in Christ. And I want you to just sit in this for just a moment. Don't just try to explain it away and say, well, that obviously can't be the case. That obviously can't be talking about me. Just sit with the weight of that for just a moment. Because he continues on, it's because of these things that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God's wrath is coming because of these things. And I want you to ask yourself, does that describe you at all? By show of hands, are there any of you out there who have ever struggled with sexual immorality, with impurity, with covetousness? Raise your hands. Yeah, that's me. Does that mean that I have no inheritance? Does that mean God's wrath is coming against me? I want to remind you of Ephesians chapter 2. It said you were Sons of disobedience. That phrase that is used here. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You were sons of disobedience. There's a really important word there. You were. But now. But God. That is not who you are anymore. You see, what Paul is talking about here is not actions, but identity. It's not that these actions condemn us to death because we know that Jesus came to take those upon himself, to die on the cross for our sins and to give us new life in him. And because of that, that's not who I am anymore. My identity is in Christ. It's not in my sin any longer. I have been given the righteousness of Christ. That's who you were, but this is who you are. But he brings, brings up a question for me. Paul, why are you talking about this? Why, why are you talking so seriously about this when you're writing to Christians who have their identity in Christ? And I think verse 7 helps us understand this. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Clearly, the them he's talking about isn't you. The them he's talking about is the people who have their identity in those things, in, in sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness. That... that those people, says you should not become partners with them. Now, I actually prefer a different word here. 
Because partners, what that conveys to me is that I shouldn't associate with them at all. I should never, you know, I shouldn't work with them. I shouldn't be around them. And yet that's not quite true. We know that can't be true, what we're going to see later in the passage. But a better word here is partakers. It says that you should, uh, sorry, do not become partakers with them. As they are engaging as this sin, as they're living in this life of sin, don't join them in that life of sin. That's not who you are anymore. You've been given a new life in Christ to walk in a new way. Don't join them. Don't partake with them in their sin. That's not who you are anymore. And that's what the next section is going to tell us. Let's, let's read verses 8 through 14. But at one time, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You were darkness. That's what we were just saying. And it's important to notice the words there. It doesn't say that you were in darkness and now you are in light. It goes deeper than that. You were darkness. But now, because of Jesus, because of the love that he had for us and giving himself up on the cross for our sins, because of that, we are light in the Lord. We have a new identity in Christ and now we are light Mentioned in 1 John, it talks about that God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. And so it makes sense that as we imitate God, as we've been given a new identity and we imitate God, now we are light. You were darkness, now you are light. But what does the next phrase say? Walk as children of light. We have that new identity in Christ. We are light, but we're still called to walk in the light. We're still called to walk as children of the light, as dearly beloved children. Walk as children of the light. Live our lives out in the light. Do the things that are light things. Do the things that are supposed to be done in the light. Not the unfruitful works of darkness, but the fruit of the light. And we see that right here. What is the fruit of the light? The fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. What's the fruit of darkness? We saw that earlier. The fruit of darkness is sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, those kinds of things. That's the fruit of darkness. But the fruit of the light is all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. You see, if we were still in darkness, if we were still living in darkness, I just want you to imagine trying to discern anything when you are just living in complete darkness. You can't do it. Try imagine reading your Bible in complete darkness to know what is pleasing to the Lord, to know God. We can't do that. But we have been brought into the light, and because of that, we can discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We know how to live this new life in Christ. But as we talk about this, there's still something that comes up. Because we have a new identity in the light. We have a new identity in Christ and so we are light, and yet we're called to walk in light, which means that we still have a choice. Even though we're not darkness, 
we still have ways in which we practice darkness. We still have areas of our life that we want to keep in darkness, that we don't want God to be a part of. Doors in our mind that we want to keep locked and the lights shut off. And we know God knows what's in there, but we don't want him to see it. We're ashamed of it. We don't want anyone to find out those things that we do. And so what do we do? We keep them, we keep them locked away and hidden. Just like my sheets at the end of the bed, I didn't want anybody to find it out. And so my solution, the way I thought it would get better, was to keep it in the dark. And so often we live our lives that way. We hide our sin because we're ashamed of it. And we just think, if I just keep that in the dark, if I don't let anyone else know about it, I'll get it figured out. I'll figure it out on my own, I'll deal with it, and then in the end, it'll get better and everything will be fine moving forward. But what happens to a room when you leave it in the dark? What happens, what, what gathers, what grows in a room that is in the dark? You can imagine it. Mold and mildew, that's the kind of stuff that grows when there's no light around. What kind of things, creatures, gather in the darkness. You know, there's a room, maybe you can imagine, maybe you've been inside of a room that has not seen the light of day for years. Maybe no one's even been in that room for a long time. Is that the kind of place you want to go? No. There's a room like that in this church. And I'm not talking about the basement in the other building. I'm talking about a room right here in this very building that very few people have seen, but I've seen it. And I can tell you, that this room is the kind of place that nightmares are made of. <laughs> it's actually right up there behind the cross. That's not an allegory or something like that. It's, there's literally a room up there behind that wall that very rarely ever sees any light, and no one hardly ever goes up there. And I can tell you why. Nobody wants to go up there. Spiders. And I'm serious. The number of thick, dark webs full of flies that I've seen up there is beyond disturbing. <laughs> I have seen spiders there that, that were there for long years, grown unhindered in the darkness to sizes beyond that which is appropriate for our Pacific Northwest climate. We don't get spiders that big around here, but they live up there. I've seen them. And you don't want to go there. And you can imagine the kind of effort it would take to clean out that room. We wouldn't want to clean it out. We just want to shut the door and leave it there. Maybe you have one of those rooms in your house. I remember uh, when we moved into our second apartment, uh, our first apartment was a one-bedroom. Our second apartment was a two-bedroom. And uh, Jill was pregnant with Michael at the time, but we hadn't had him yet. And so what does that room become when, you, when nobody's filling it? It becomes a storage room. You just put anything you don't want to deal with in that room. And then what do you do? You shut the door. You shut the door so you don't have to look at it and feel bad that all of your unorganized stuff is sitting in there. You just, you don't, you don't want to deal with it. But then when that day comes and the baby's born and we need to set up the room, yeah, it becomes more difficult. And we do that in our own lives as well. We have sins. We have things in our life that we don't, we don't want to allow 
God to get in there. We don't want to let anyone else know about those things. And we think that if I just shut the door, it'll get better on its own. Eventually, I'll figure it out. But that doesn't solve the problem. It says here, in verse 11, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. That's the opposite of what needs to happen here. And that word expose gives you that idea of light. It needs to be exposed to the light. Don't don't join people. Don't partake with them in their darkness. Expose it with light. That's the only way to kill the mold and the mildew is to expose it with light. It says in verse 13, sorry, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And here we're not talking about the speaking that exposes it, the speaking that confesses our sins. We're talking about the, the joining in with that, like we talked about in verse 4, talking about these things. It's shameful even to speak of these things. Don't do that. Expose it. Verse, verse uh, 14 says, or verse 13 says, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. The goal here is to shine the light of Christ on those dark areas, to expose them to the light. That is the only way that it can get better. And he finishes with, Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We have been risen from the dead. That's baptism is that picture, being risen from the dead. Not only that, though, but, and, but I think the thing here is, Awake, O sleeper. We are living in the light. You were darkness, now you are light. We're living in the light. And yet too often we want to close our eyes and pretend like we're asleep. Too often we want to pretend like we're living in darkness. We want to hide ourselves from the light of Christ because we're ashamed of what we've done. Yet that's not how we're called to live. That's not how we live the new life in Christ. We don't hide those things. We don't keep them covered up. We expose them to the light of Christ. Now, a lot of what we've been talking about today has been kind of metaphor. I could let you off easy. You could just talk, think about interesting things. I don't really know how this applies to my life, but in general, those are interesting principles that we need to expose the darkness to the light of Christ, and that sounds good. And yet, this is very applicable to our lives. Now, we have to start with the love of Christ. We have to remember the love that Christ had for us when he gave himself up for us. Because if we, the whole reason that we're hiding these things is because we've forgotten the love of Christ. But when we remember how much he loves us, we can unashamedly confess and admit our sins. Because we're not afraid of what he'll say or what he'll do. So it starts with love. Remember, Christ has loved you so much that he gave himself up for you. And because of that, we walk in love. And now we're called to walk in to live in the light. And what Ephesians 5 really points toward specifically, it could, it could apply to any sin. It could apply to lots of areas of our life. But where it really gets into is sexual sin. And we can see the connection that that has with the darkness, the image there, the darkness. That those sexual sins, those are the ones we want to keep packed away. We want to keep that in the dark room of our minds. We want to keep that in literally in the dark. We don't want people to find out about those things that we've done. And so we lock them away, we keep them in the dark, and hope that no one will ever find out about it, and hope that over time it'll just, those problems will solve themselves. But it doesn't work that way. 
you don't deal it, if you don't expose it to the light, it'll never get better. And so I'm going to be really honest and really open and really frank with you this morning. Guys, what we're talking about here is your addiction to pornography that no one else knows about, especially not your wife. We're talking about the lustful thoughts that you have, the way that you look at women and the way that you think about it in your own mind, in the darkness of your own mind that you hope that no one ever finds out that you think about those things. Women, this might be true for you too, or it might be in a different way. It may not be so much the physical lust of sex, but a different form of it. It may be emotional. And this may come out of of the shows that you're watching or the romance novels that you're reading that give you an unhealthy and unrealistic expectation of intimacy. You have that idea of the ideal husband, and it's not the one you're married to. And these thoughts in our mind, we think, I'll never actually act on them, and so it's fine. Who cares what goes on in the darkness of my mind? I'll never actually do that, but it doesn't work that way, does it? No, because no one just starts doing that. No one just cheats on their husband or wife all in one day. It's because of years of thinking about these things that lead to that. It starts with the kind of content that we're consuming. It starts with the stuff that we're putting into our minds. And the way that we're talking about it with other people, the way that we're thinking about it. And it leads to that action. When you talk to somebody who struggles with alcohol addiction, maybe they've been sober for a while, and they break that sobriety. It doesn't all happen all in one moment. It's not just all of a sudden they want another drink and so they're going to go and drink. I've heard this from people who struggle with this. That it starts with a thought. And that thought, that idea may come hours or days before they actually give into it. But they turn that thought over in their mind thinking, I'm, I'm not actually going to relapse. I'm not actually going to go back to alcohol to be my hope in life. But it's nice to think about a little bit. And that thought, in the darkness of your mind, it festers and grows. And eventually it gets so big that that can't contain it anymore. And you act out on it. This is what we're talking about here this morning. That's what it looks like to, although you are light, you're living in darkness still. That's not who you are. We want to live in the light. I know that any of you who is a true follower of Christ here this morning, you want to live in the light. This isn't a guilt trip. This isn't you need to try hard and do better to stop living in darkness. You don't want to live in darkness. There's a desperation in your battle with sin that you don't want to be that person anymore. You don't want to live that way anymore. You want to walk in the light of Christ You want to walk outside today and see the brilliant, beautiful sun. No more clouds and rain, but you want to walk in the glory of God and the light of Christ. That's how we want to live. But I'm ashamed of what I've done, and I don't want to admit it. I don't want to tell anybody about it. I don't even want to admit it to myself. But that's the only way forward. What do we do with the unfruitful works of darkness? We have to expose them. You need to shine the light of Christ on those dark recesses of your mind. You need to expose the sinful thoughts and behaviors. 
and walk in newness of life. 1 John 1, 9 says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That sums it up right there. That's how we bring our sin into the light, is to confess it to one another. Confess it to God. Confess it to others. Guys, one of the hardest things you will ever do is to tell your wife about your struggle with lust or pornography. And yet that is the only way that you can move forward. That is the only way to bring it into the light. And it can't survive there. It cannot survive before the glory of Christ. It shrivels up like mold or mildew. Women, don't keep your sinful thoughts to yourself either. Confess them to your friends. Confess them to God. Confess them to your husband. There's these things that, it's, it's really cool, UV disinfectors, have you seen that? Where they actually use UV light to kill bacteria and germs. And that's the idea that we're talking here. This light, the glory of God, the light of Christ, when we expose our sins, when we confess our sins to God and to one another, that's what brings it into the light, and it cannot survive there. Now, it's a process, and it's a thing we regularly, continually have to do. We confess our sins. But when we do that, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I just think back to my wet bed sheets and the shame that I felt because of that. And yet, my mom loved me. She wasn't going to punish me for that. She wanted to help me with it. But it needed to be brought out into the light. It needed to be exposed and Jesus looks at us the same way. He has died on the cross for our sins. And he is ever ready to reach into those dark places of our life and to bring the light that he is. The light of the gospel. The light of his saving grace. And to help us out of the darkness and into new life with him. And then, as we are light, as we walk as children of the light, we have an opportunity to shine our light onto others. You see, our good deeds, the way that we live, all that is good and right and true, the fruits of living in the light, that shines a light on other people. And if we're being honest, initially, people don't like that. They don't want the light shined into their dark life because it exposes their sin, it exposes what they do wrong. When they see you doing what is right, it shows them everything that they're doing is wrong. And there's a lot of people who want to keep walking in the darkness. But there's some who will see the light and see the warmth and the joy of that light in you. And they're going to say, I want to live in the light too. And you have an opportunity by shining your light on others to bring the light of Christ into their life. To share the love that Christ had when he gave himself up so that they can walk in love and walk as children of light. We need to do this in our own lives. We need to shine the light of Christ in those dark areas that we wish no one would know about. We need to confess our sins. We also need to shine the light of Christ on the people around us by walking in the light, by doing those things, by living out our calling in Christ, by putting on the new self, walking in the light, and sharing the love of Jesus with everyone around us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins. 
And God, I pray that you would help us to really fully understand the love that you have for us. Because it's only out of that love that we can walk in the light. God, I pray that we would understand that love and then we would walk in the light. We would walk as children of light. God, I pray that we would expose those sinful areas of our life. God, I pray um, whether it's sexual sin or it's some other sin that we want to keep hidden because of shame, because of guilt, that we don't want to let into the light. We don't want to confess our sins. God, I pray that you would help us to see that that is the way forward. That because of the love that you have for us, we don't need to be ashamed. Christ has taken all of that on himself on the cross. And so we can gladly confess our sins to one another and walk in newness of life. And I pray that we would do that today. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.